Turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2. Nehemiah, chapter 2. I'll be reading the whole chapter here. Nehemiah 2. And before we hear God's word read, let us go again to him, humbly asking for understanding. Oh God, this text, again, is perhaps unfamiliar to many of us, and it might be difficult to see the relevance of this chapter to our lives and the connection to Christ, and we do pray now that you would help us to see clearly. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, we pray. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 2. Hear now the word of God. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring into the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. 
building projects. Some of them, we wonder why they were even thought of to begin with. And others, we love. Sometimes they pave paradise and put up a parking lot. Other times, they, they build a, a nice baseball stadium for all to come into and to watch the Fayetteville Woodpeckers to play in. Sometimes they build a club to support all manner of immorality. And other times, they build a house for the whole family to live in, love one another, and to work for God. I read an article that released just before the new year. It was from Military.com, and the title was, Army Wraps $95 Million Project Renovating Moldy Fort Liberty Barracks, Demolishing Others. Of course, I've never lived in the barracks, but I've heard they're pretty nice. <laughs> of course not. Horror stories are, are told. Uh, by those who have lived in them. It's not pretty. And in this article, the, the author focuses attention on the, quote, troubled Smoke Bomb Hill barracks. To me, that means nothing. But to some of you, probably that means a lot more uh, than to others. These barracks were eventually rendered unlivable after many and regular complaints were made. And you know that it, it had to be bad in order to beat down the bureaucracy to change things to finally get some, something livable. But the infrastructure was ancient. The mold had thoroughly invaded friendly territory and had been victorious. It had won. In a building project like this, which the Defense Department fast-tracked $95 million for, was no doubt well-received by the soldiers. And living in the new buildings is highly anticipated. The buildings were in extreme and honestly, it was a shame and a disgrace to put up this country's soldiers in such dilapidation and squalor. I'm sure you would agree. The multi-years project was a good work. Even if it did cost many arms and legs, it was good work for the good of the soldiers, which in turn was for the good of the army, which was in turn for the good of the whole country. And as we turn our attention now to mid-5th century B.C., our minds consider the value and the urgency of another building project, the, re the rebuilding of the temple walls. And as we consider this good work, our minds look to the present and to our future as we seek to work heartily unto the Lord in all that we do, praying for great works of revival in our land we see this evening through this text that saints engaged in true works of revival are resisted by the godless, but reassured by God. Look again with me at verse 1. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And so we remember from the last time that news came over to Nehemiah in the month of Kislev, which, because of the lunar calendar, falls in somewhere between November and or December. Now we're here in Nisan, still the 20th year of Artaxerxes, and this is the month of March or April, again, because of the lunar calendar. So we're talking four months later. So chapter 1, and then four months later, we have chapter 2. And what has Nehemiah been doing these four months? Do we wonder? Well, we shouldn't wonder. He's been praying to his covenant God. As we saw last time, he would regularly, day and night, mourn and confess, weep and, and pray before his God. 
Also, he was praying that God would show him favor with the king to let him do something about the problem. He knew that there was a problem, and he needed favor from Artaxerxes. He needed favor by God for Artaxerxes to allow him to do something about the problem. And so in Nehemiah's mind, the time finally was right, four months later, which had to have been hard for him to endure, since he really was mournful over what's going on. But finally, the time was right for him to come before the king. Because of the city ruins, he couldn't shake the sadness off of his countenance. Normally, a man not given to sadness before the king, Nehemiah's heart was full of sorrow. And by God's guidance, the king noticed that Nehemiah's sad face reflected his sad heart. When he was asked, Nehemiah then gives an honest answer. My, my people and this place of mine, my city, are in shambles. They are in shame. They're in ruin. The king says, well, what are you requesting? Would you like me to do something about this? And you notice that Nehemiah prays again just before he gives an answer. A quick, silent, but needful prayer to God. It's not as if he, he hadn't been praying for four months. He had been. But now... It was the time, and the time was not appropriate for him to say, okay, king, thanks for that question. Let me go to my house and kneel before God and pray, and then I'll come back to you with an answer. He needed to give an answer right away. And so he prays this quick, silent prayer before God, and this is something that we've all prayed, right? We've, we've prayed these prayers before when we are anticipating an encounter, maybe it's an evangelistic one or something, uh, we're going to share some uh, hard news with a, with a brother or sister in the Lord, or we don't know exactly what course of action we're going to take. And we have to be flexible when we come into the situation. We say, Lord, I need wisdom. I need you, Lord. Give me the words to speak. I don't know exactly what to do. I need your help. And that's what Nehemiah was praying, which is a reminder that we should be never ceasing with our prayers, just like we learned this morning from Philippians, that we should be people of prayer. Here, this praying man, again, prays a very short prayer, but a needful one. And in part, he prays because fear had been a factor. He says, I was very much afraid in verse 2. Why was he afraid? And perhaps because he would soon be asking the king to change the king's earlier policy and essentially reverse the earlier act of squashing the rebuilding that had begun. And that had happened in Ezra chapter 4. But he was bold. He was courageous. He knew that what he was going to ask was a good work. His request was a good one. It was a godly request. He says, send me that I may rebuild my city. He was right to have been sad on account of the shame and the trouble that overshadowed Judah. He knew it was a good work, which is what their work was called in verse 18. So we see from an application already that when saints pray for change, we must examine the goodness of our petition. We must examine the rightness of the petition before we pray. Brothers and sisters, before we avail ourselves of this means of grace, 
praying for ourselves, praying for our families, our friends, for one another, our city, our state, our nation, the whole world, even before we do that. And we must do that. But before we do that, we are wise when we examine what we are asking. We must be careful to pray for those things which God has commanded. We should be mindful of the promises that God has given to us that are yes and amen in Christ that we have full warrant to pray for. We shouldn't just pray whatever comes to mind. We need to examine what we are praying for. And our Father honors frequent and fervent prayers for revival in our hearts, revival in our homes, revival in our nation. And we know this because he honored the son's sad petitions. Many times when the son would pray to the father, he would pray sad. He would pray mourning. He would pray lamenting. He would even say, you know, what should I do? Father, save me from this hour. He would pray with a sad countenance because not everything was hunky-dory. There was sin and there was unbelief and there was rejection of him. And there was mistreatment. There was hatefulness. And he knew that there needed to be change. And he prayed. And we know that the Father heard his prayer. You are living proof that the Father heard the Son's prayer because you've been changed. And we look at verse 6 here. It says, And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And so we see God honoring this prayer for citywide revival by the king's permission. I think we should be mindful of Proverbs 22, verse 1. It says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver and gold. So Nehemiah here uses his sound reputation not for his name, not for silver, not for gold, but for God. Remember, he was a cupbearer to the king, and only someone of good repute would be found in that position. And the king obviously cares about Nehemiah because he says, why, you're sad. This is not a sickness. This is a sadness of the heart. Something's really going on with you. Can I help you with something? And Nehemiah, yes, yes, you can. So he uses his reputation for good. And before answering, the king wants to know how long Nehemiah will be gone. And we learn later on in chapters 5 and 13 that Nehemiah will end up serving as governor for 12 years. Now, the king most likely did not sign off on a 12-year TDY. I'm told that a TDY is really only up to six months to a year. So he wouldn't sign off on that for this beloved cupbearer of his. Most likely what happened is Nehemiah reported to the king within a year and then had his governor appointment renewed. By God's grace to Nehemiah and to all of Judah, the king overall now moves Artaxerxes to sign off on the project. The king gives the go-ahead as seen through his royal recommendation, royal gifts, and royal protection. Look at verse 7. We see the royal recommendation here. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the let, me, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. 
Now, recommendations are very important in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. They are the sending agency's way of approving of the person who is unknown or whose ways may go against the ways of the people to whom he's being sent. And of course, today we depend on recommendations as well. Most people land jobs because of who they know. There's a phrase, right? It's, it all depends on who you know. Oh, the blessings of networking and the problems if you don't know anyone. I landed this job, this vocation here, six years ago because I knew someone. And for four or five years as I sought a call, one of the problems, I think, of not getting a call was that I didn't know the right people. And it just so happened in God's providence that a former elder, ruling elder here, moved to Phoenix and was at the same church where I was serving, and he knew that there was still uh, that there was, um, an opening for an associate pastor. And that was my end. And I didn't know you guys. I didn't know Fayetteville. I thought it was ca- called Fayetteville. <laughs> Probably my Spanish uh, pronunciation background there. Recommendations, very important. And Nehemiah couldn't have done any better than a royal recommendation letter here. But King Artaxerxes goes beyond his mere word. He provides supplies as well. Look at verse 8. We see royal gifts. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So he uses his royal clout and position to make Asaph, the keeper of the forest, to permit timber for the building of the temple city beams, for the temple wall, and for Nehemiah's house that will need to be built. More than that, we see royal protection. Artaxerxes didn't let Nehemiah travel alone and vulnerable. In verse 9, it says, in verse 9b, Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So accompanying Nehemiah were army officers and horsemen. He had, then, a military escort. One commentator says, The king made sure that Nehemiah arrived in style, impressively reinforcing the presentation of credentials to the neighboring governors and making very plain the change of royal policy. There was no doubt that King Artaxerxes signed off on this project. He made it very clear. And so anyone who opposes Nehemiah is actually then opposing King Artaxerxes. This pagan Persian king then gives Nehemiah everything needed for Nehemiah's godly work. Now here is where we come to the most controversial application point in the sermon, but it's in the text. We're not, this application point here is saints wisely avail themselves of political assistance to support the work. We're not being godly when we say, well, Christianity is over here and politics are over there and they don't mix. Like oil and water. No. We're not even being pious by saying Caesar can do whatever he wants over here and then we'll do what we can. We'll just endure the hardship. No. There's a whole realm of theology worthy of deep study. It's called political theology and the relationship between the church and the state and to be sure... Full disclosure, I am no expert. It's an area that I am interested in studying and need to do more study in. But I know that we can all learn a thing or two or 20 
if we devote ourselves to deep, reflective study on our own confession, chapters 19 through 23 and 25. These chapters are on God's law, Christian liberty, religious worship, lawful oaths and vows, civil magistrate, and the church. Now, hear what J. Gresham Machen says. He says, do you think that acceptance of the Christian message will hinder political or social advance? No, my friends. That's important because sometimes Machen is used to have a sharp divide, a division between Christianity or the church and politics. He doesn't. Of course, the question is really by what means? And is the church as an institution allowed to engage in the political realm? Or is that responsibility, that duty, that um, permission only for individual Christians? That's where the debate really lies. Now let me get very specific here again for a moment. Did anything good come from Trump's presidency? Would anything good come from future Trump's presidency if he became president? So just think about the past. Did anything good come from it? That's a hard question, isn't it? But I think if we are honest, we would have to say, yes, some good things did come from that. Now here are some qualifications, okay? I'm not a full endorser of the man. I'm not even a mild endorser of the man. <clears throat> and to be honest, I'm not a mild or full endorser of Artaxerxes either. But the man, Trump, made good on his promise against Roe versus Wade, protect the preborn, and he had some other things uh, that he did well. The economy was better then than it is now. Now, are these spiritual goods? The clear answer is no, these are not spiritual goods but they can facilitate life, liberty, and the pursuit of joy. And we are embodied people. And God cares about not just our souls, not just about the immaterial, but also the material. Now, does this mean that this man is our Savior? My goodness, absolutely not. And sadly, there are people who think that he is. And that is a travesty because they are going against what God, the Word of God says. Do not put your trust in princes and horses. Does this mean that he is saved? No, not necessarily. Does this mean that he's not a controversial man? We all know that he is. But again, who knows what Artaxerxes was like? Was he this godly man? Was he for the good of Israel? Say, yes, I really believe in this work. This is a godly work. We need to have more worship of Yahweh and Yahweh alone. So Nehemiah, go ahead. No, he had his own motives for allowing Nehemiah to do this. Still, he was used by God as a civil servant for the good of God's people. The proverb says that the king's heart is always in the hand of the Lord. Sometimes, the Lord turns the king's heart to incline towards the church. And we can use that inclination for good. Now, listen how the PCA begins its letter to the U.S. government. I made copies of this last week for you guys. I won't read the whole thing, but I'll just read the, the first paragraph. We, the Presbyterian Church in America, the largest body of confessional Presbyterian and Reformed churches in North America, consisting of more than 1,500 congregations and 374,000 members across the United States and Canada, humbly petition you, 
to protect the lives and welfare of minor children from the physical, mental, and emotional harms associated with medical and surgical interventions for the purpose of gender reassignment. Furthermore, we call upon you to use your positions to promote the health, bodily integrity, and well-being of minors who are suffering from gender dysphoria and related conditions. So this is a petition from our own denomination, which I mentioned last week. And notice that part of the grounding of this is here we have the largest body of confessional Presbyterian and Reformed churches in North America. Here's our numbers, 1,500 congregations, 374,000 members. We are a significant body, the PCA is saying, and we are humbly asking that you stop these gender reassignment surgeries. And it goes on to give the biblical grounding for creation and what God's design is for the human body and how it's harmful to do these surgeries. But sometimes our church, the church, our denomination, should have that prophetic witness to the, the culture, to the magistrate. Say, what you're doing is not wise leadership. And they would listen more, I think, if we were actually, if we actually had some integrity. If we, had, if we had a good, sound witness. If we demonstrated a commitment to truth and commitment to love. But of course, there's always resistance to revival, always resistance to good, godly works. Verse 10, we see this resistance to revival. We see that God's work, and it is God's work, it is opposed. Verse 10, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Surprisingly or not, it is actually the religious authorities that resist the good work of revival. Maybe that's not really surprising. We see this over and over again in the Gospels when it comes to Jesus' leadership. The religious authorities are the ones really who are opposing him more than anyone else. And here we have the same. We have men of resistance. We have three men mentioned here by name, and they will pop up again and again throughout this book. We have Sanballat. This man was the governor of Samaria. He was well-connected. He was highly influential. We have Tobiah. He was part of a powerful Jewish family in Ammon. His name means Yahweh is good. And he and his offspring would ironically have a very bad influence on God's people. Two centuries after Nehemiah here, we see that the Tobias would have a corrupting influence on religion and politics in the time leading up to the Jews' persecution by Antiochus Epiphanes, something you can read about in the Maccabees. Not scripture, but does give some history to the intertestamental period. And third, we have Geshem. This man, though less committed to the cause, was perhaps the most powerful of the three. He and his sons ruled a league of Arabian tribes and had control of Moab and Edom, together with uh, part of Arabia and the approaches of Egypt. So here we have three men and their groups surrounding Judah with significant hostility, opposing this work. They are a force to be reckoned with. And how do they resist? What is the means that they resist? We see in verse 19 the means. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And so what's the, what is the means? It's mockery. 
they are making fun of this work. They're saying, are you guys really rebelling against the king? You know he already stopped this, right? Just You should have read Ezra 4. It's in your scriptures. What is this you're doing? Do you honestly think that you can come up against us? We are a well-connected group, groups of groups, and we will not allow this. And this is why Nehemiah prays that God's people would not be mocked, that they wouldn't suffer derision. So here, in chapter 2, is low-level resistance. It'll soon accelerate. It'll soon heighten. But the mockery was definitely felt. The jeering was hard for Nehemiah and his men to get past. It was, it was difficult. Nobody likes being mocked. Nobody likes being regularly cursed at and, and jeered at and their work to be undermined. But why are these guys doing this? Why resist? Nehemiah tells us in verse 10, the second part, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Someone had come for Israel. Someone had come to deliver, to restore Israel, and that bothered them. It displeased them greatly. They hated that Nehemiah and others would come for the welfare of Israel. They wanted Israel forever in ruins and never to prosper. They didn't seek the welfare of the people of Israel. They wanted Israel down and out, and they wanted Israel under their thumb forever. Beloved, saints wisely recall the threefold enemy against the good work of revival. When you pray for the good work of revival in your hearts, in your homes, in nations, know that you will face opposition from your own flesh, a force to be reckoned with. You will face opposition from the world. You will, for, you will face opposition from the devil. Our, warf, our warfare is spiritual. They will challenge the goodness of the pursuit, the worthiness of the pursuit, its needfulness. Is it really necessary to do that? Or is it really necessary right now to engage in that? They'll challenge the urgency, and they'll challenge your usefulness. What can you do? Can you really do anything? Don't you know how small you are? Do you know, Moses, that you really can't speak well? You're not very eloquent. What good can come from you? And of course, they didn't make that opposition. That was his own opposition, wasn't it? That was his own hesitation. That was his own flesh speaking. Like, I'm not sufficient in myself. And God says, you're right, you're not. I will speak through you. All good works worth doing will definitely face the evil works of suppressing. Jesus' good work of saving our souls was opposed at every turn. Obviously, Nehemiah here is the one, is a someone who had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And we know that in Jesus' day, that temple and its wall and, and all the stuff that, is, that, gets, that ends up getting built in Nehemiah, that stuff comes crashing down. And what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Jesus came to restore. He came to rescue. He came to deliver people out of their own sin, to rescue them from the wrath of God Almighty. He came to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And this good work, the best work, was hotly opposed 
the Spirit's good works of sanctifying us and of making Jesus known to all nations, these great works continue to be hotly opposed and firmly resisted by the devil, principalities, and powers. We must always then be aware of this reality, even if we cannot see it. And we're, we're going to have a whole ABF series on angels and demons and, and spiritual warfare, hopefully to help us to be more aware of what's going on when we can't see it. And perhaps that's how they would like it, is that we aren't aware of it or not thinking about it. But we must always be on our guard. There's spiritual warfare all around us. We are to be engaged in it. As we turn to this next section, between the initial opposition and the mockery was Nehemiah's inspection. Look at verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. So wisely, Nehemiah inspects some of the prominent gates, the the valley gate, the dung gate, the fountain gate, and the temple wall in order to assess the damage and to see what plan to put in place for their restoration. And we're going to see all the gates in the next chapter. I think there's like 17 17 gates and areas that uh, he uh, he and his team will get to work on. But right now, he's just doing the reconnaissance. He's just doing the inspection. He was on his donkey until he couldn't be, and then he had to go on foot, and he did all of this with stealth. He knew the opposition he was going to face, and so an undercover operation was necessary. Why did Nehemiah do this? Why would he fight? Why do this secret work of assessment? Why even start all this? Well, his motives are the exact opposite of those of his enemies. Remember, his enemy's motive was to seek the destruction and no longer wanted to see Israel prosper, didn't want the welfare of the people of Israel. And so his desire was the welfare of the people of Israel. His desire was Israel's restoration. Likewise, Jesus operated wisely with stealth for a time. You know, after some miracles, he would tell those that he had blessed not to say a word to anyone until the time was right. He says, I've healed you, but don't say anything just yet. And most of the time, they disobeyed. They ran off and told and got Jesus into some trouble. Or in John chapter 7, he told his brothers that it wasn't time for him to go to Jerusalem with them. And then soon thereafter, he went because he wasn't associating with his brothers at the time. And when he taught in private, he taught in public. But he was always aware of his coming hour. And until it was his hour, the hour of his glory crucifixion, until that time, he avoided capture. We were even, uh, Mrs. Goblin and I were, were talking this morning about uh, some of the uh, lines in uh, the Bible that just are fascinating, and there's a whole crowd around Jesus, and everyone's going to get him, and then it just says, and he slipped out of the crowd. Like, how'd he do that? <laughs> Mark, please tell us more. <laughs> it's crazy. How'd he do it? But he did it. He avoided capture. Until the time was right, until it was time for him to give up his body. And then he gave it up. As he said, no one takes my life, but I give it willingly, and I will raise it up. And so saints consider the nature and extent of the work before publishing it. Not only do we evaluate the goodness of Reformation, but also the timing of it. Martin Luther surely gathered his thoughts before publishing his 95 Theses. Now, I know he was pretty hot-headed at times and impulsive, 
But it took him some time to write those 95 theses. It was a meaningful work, a a godly work of, of opposition and trying to get a conversation going. And he needed time to think about what he was going to say and when those would be said. Pharrell, Calvin, Veret, Knox, and many other reformers consider their audiences not only how best to promote the good work of the Reformation, but also the timing of their publications, the timing of their actions. And so for us, that the element of surprise can at times be advantageous to those of us who speak against abortion. You don't need to tell the whole world you're, you're coming to talk about or against abortion. Or asking the government to cease and assist its promotion of gender assignment surgeries takes thought and time in not only what to say, but when to say it. Recon can be very highly valuable. But against this opposition, there needs to be assurances. There needs to be stirring up to the good work. Because the good work is so hotly opposed, God's people need to be encouraged, need to be exhorted to keep on keeping on. Verses 17 and 18, this is Nehemiah speaking to the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. He says, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So more than a fervent urging is one that's full of assurance. We have both here. We have that urging, that rally cry. But that rally cry is grounded in something or rather someone It's not just stirring up the emotions to get someone to do something without a proper grounding, a proper foundation, which is God. Nehemiah encourages his few good men that as they work, they will not suffer derision. Why why this revival? What's the motive here? Why work so hard? Why would they endure so much mockery? Why face the possibility of derision? Why? Well, Psalm 48, verse 2, was most likely in Nehemiah's hope-filled heart. It says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. That's Nehemiah's goal. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. This is a holy mountain. It's beautiful in elevation. It's the joy of all the earth. He loved the land of Israel. He loved that this was God's place where God's people dwelt, where God dwelt among man. That was the goal. That's why he could resist all the opposition. That's why he could keep going. That's why he would encourage them to keep going. Those at the Tower of Babel wanted to build to make a name for themselves. But Nehemiah here encourages everyone to come and build because God, the God of heaven, will make them prosper. Saints need to stir up one another in the good works of God. We are moved for revival because God has assured us that he will make it prosper. It is his to do. It was, after all, the Son of God who faced mockery, who faced derision, and all the hostility that the world, the flesh, and the devil could muster. And he did all of that for the building up of God's house, that it might really be said 
the joy of all the earth, beautiful in elevation, holy mountain of God. Zeal for the Father's house consumed him, we know from the Gospel of John. Zeal for God's glory in the salvation of sinners consumed him. Why did he endure all of that mockery? Why did he persevere all the hardship? To glorify God by saving you. Such beautiful news, isn't it? And it was Jesus who then made us his living stones in the household of God. It is in this church that the Holy Spirit dwells for the glory of his name. And he is at work even now to do the same across the world. In fact, Revelation eleven fifteen says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. This is my Father's world, and this is the world of Christ, the Son of the Father. Do we really believe that he is still doing that? If so, then we will agree with Machen here. Instead of obliterating the distinction between the kingdom and the world, or on the other hand, withdrawing from the world into a sort of modernized intellectual monasticism, let us go forth joyfully, enthusiastically, to make the world subject to God. How is the world made subject to God? There's only one way that every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. There's only one way, is that the Spirit uses the gospel to convert hearts. So we can make the world subject to God through our witnessing to the Lordship of Christ, to the gospel of Christ. It really isn't us, though. It's God's work, right? God uses us. It is His to do. We are simply lowly servants in His kingdom, saying, this kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of God, is a much better kingdom than the kingdom of the world. Why don't you come over here, and you will have life. You will have joy. You will have the Holy Spirit. You will have every spiritual blessing. Come. Come to Christ, you who are weary and heavy laden, and He will give you rest. In 1852, with Franklin Pierce as the nation's soon-to-be 14th president, who was president from 1853 to 1857, it seemed like the nation would finally know peace, unity, and harmony, even though Franklin Pierce remained pro-slavery. But in 1852, the 40-year-old white author and abolitionist Harry Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, selling 300,000 copies in the U.S. and a million in Britain in the first year of publication. Those numbers are staggering. And near the start of the Civil War, Stowe had met President Lincoln, who was reported to have said, so this is the little lady who wrote the book that made this big war. The Lord was not content for our nation back then to know a false peace under Pierce's presidency. 
Even now, the Lord desires revival for our hearts, our homes, our cities, our states, our country, and all the nations of the world. It will not come without a fight, and it will definitely not come from the world, but it will come for the world. It will come from us as God works in us and through us to do his good pleasure. But really, who are we? We are really nothing special, except God does say that we are special. We are the church. We sing sometimes, we are God's people. And I don't know, maybe you feel a little um, pride when you sing that, we are God's people, the chosen of the Lord. Say, is that right for me to sing that? Yes, it's right. Are you not the chosen of the Lord? Did God not choose you? Did Christ not die for you? Did the Spirit not indwell in you? Sing it. Sing it heartily. Sing it joyfully. Jesus died for you. Indeed, Jesus died, as John 3.16 says, for the world. That every tribe, tongue, and nation, and people would be saved. This is God's good creation that has fallen, and God is restoring. So let's go, knowing that the Lord has strengthened our hands and that he will make his work prosper. Let's pray. Our gracious and glorious God, we do come before you again knowing that this is a mighty work of revival, and we are in ourselves, Lord, we can do no good thing that we are not even the source of revival, though we are pleased to be used as agents for the Spirit's work, for the work of Jesus Christ, who works through the Spirit. We are thankful that we have the, the opportunity to speak about the excellencies of Christ, of Him who called us out of darkness and into His light. Help us, Lord, to be bold witnesses against the opposition of the flesh, the world, and the devil, that people would know that Jesus Christ is Lord. They would bend the knee, that they would confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord. For your glory and the good of the world, we pray. Amen.